Hello there, and welcome to Gilded in Blood, the Horror Lit Podcast. My name is Kevin. If you hear me kind of wheezy and uh, coffee, I'm going to, of course, you know, edit out the coughs and the hacks and the sniffles and all that kind of stuff. But if, if I sound a little different, <laughs> I'm a little bit under the weather. I think I've got a cold going on. It's messing with my asthma. It's probably because the weather can't figure out what the hell it wants to do. And it's cold one day and hot the next day and just the joys of living in this state. But uh, bear with me. I'm going to try to make this as pleasurable as possible for your ears and not be too annoying. So a couple of weeks ago, we... Uh, talked about a story called The People Next Door by Pauline C. Smith, kind of a short little short and sweet story uh, with some feminist undertones, and uh, we're going to really round that out and give the history behind uh, such stories, because to me, that all kind of stems from one excellent feminist horror short story, and that is what we're going to be talking about today, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's the yellow wallpaper. This is an absolute classic. Most of you have probably already read it. If you have not, you really do need to go check this story out. It is available everywhere. It's available online. It's, I believe it's in the public domain. You can go print off a copy and keep it for your own, or you can get some more of her short stories. They are very, very good. Charlotte Perkins Gilman, I usually don't go over the history or kind of the background of the people I talk about in the short shocks. I will today because it has a little bit of relevance on the story that that she wrote. Uh, She had a husband who was uh, pretty typical of the time. You know, this is the 1800s. She had to be hospitalized for what they called, you know, nervous uh, breakdown or, or a, a nervous attack and, and things of that nature. And the doctor, along with her husband, uh, ordered bed rest. That the, the, the only thing that's going to make you better is to simply rest, not do anything. Don't write, don't read, don't talk to anybody. All you need to do is be in a room alone and rest and you'll feel a lot better, which (laughs) even at that time, there were already people starting to think that, well, that doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense, does it? That seems pretty damn stupid. And Gilman believed that as well. And eventually went to another doctor, one of the first female doctors actually, who said, well, that's bunk. That's not going to help you feel better. That's going to just make you worse. And Uh, This whole experience uh, gave her the idea to write this story, The Yellow Wallpaper. So we have a similar, almost a semi-autobiographical tale here, her take on what was done to her and what, uh, what she had to go through. So it's, it's a really interesting story. It does try to say quite a lot of things about how women were viewed and how women were treated in her day and age. So it's certainly something that, uh, is pretty important to read. And in addition, a very, very frightening tale in itself. But uh, let's let's go ahead and get into it, and we'll kind of pull apart the layers and see everything that's here. So we have a, a woman who is has just given birth and has been prescribed bed rest. Uh, basically, you, you need to be alone. You need to be in a calm environment. You need to not interact with anybody. You need to not write or read or anything. You just need to lay in bed, and you're going to get a lot better. <laughs> so we already know that 
that this is probably not going to go uh, very well. And her husband, John, is himself a physician, and he is the one who prescribed her this bed rest. So right there, there's a conflict of interest uh, uh, right off the bat. You know, doctors probably shouldn't mix their personal life and their professional life, but certainly John does now. And there's a lot in this story about kind of the arrogance of physicians. He, he mentions it so many times. Well, I'm a doctor. You are not. So you need to trust me. I know what's best for you. I know better than you what you need because I am a doctor. <laughs> kind of a prick, really. And of course, reading through this story, you kind of start to hate John. And that's probably, uh, you know, <laughs> that's, that's probably intentional. So they go to this, uh, this mansion, this, this house out in the, uh, in the countryside, and they rent it for a certain period of time. And she is installed in this upstairs room that used to be ostensibly a nursery, this large, wide expanse of a room. And she thinks it's it probably was a nursery because things are kind of bolted down to the floor so that they can't be moved, tipped over, and all that kind of stuff. And there's bars on the window so that children can't open the, open the window and uh, fall out. Now, if I just said to you, it's a r- large room with bars on the window and everything's bolted to the floor, <laughs> you would probably not think nursery. You'd probably think think insane asylum cell, which uh, there may be some truth to that. We'll, we'll have to kind of keep going. Now, this the story is written in uh, diary entries that uh, the, this woman uh, never named. This narrator is surreptitiously keeping to herself. She's, she's kind of sneaking some uh, uh, pen and paper so that she can write out her feelings because obviously she has nobody to talk to. The only other people here are her husband, her infant child, and her husband's sister, Jane. And they don't really interact with her all that much. John does every so often, but usually that descends into, well, you need to do this and you need to do that. So she's kind of alone here. So this is a way for her to kind of get her thoughts uh, out. And uh, at the beginning, she she seems to enjoy this. It's a, it's a beautiful mansion with the, the grounds, have this lovely garden there and everything. But this room that she's been ensconced in is not very nice. There's awful, awful wallpaper on the on the walls, and it is this sickly, awful yellow color that just bothers her down to her core. It seems diseased, and I always thought that when I when I read this, it reminded me a lot of the the fact that yellow. For some reason, the color of yellow in horror fiction has always been seen as a bad color. It's, it's, it's a color that doesn't mean sunshine and, and, and happiness and, and joy. It's always viewed as you know a, a, a color of, of disease or a color of illness, a color of, uh, of rot. And certainly it is portrayed as such here. And of course, it does remind me, and those of you who've done your kind of horror uh, homework, it might remind you of uh, Robert Chambers's The King in Yellow, which is a collection of, of kind of apocalyptic short stories all revolving around this uh, play that seems to drive people mad who who watch it or who or who read it and the main villain the the character this this apocalyptic figure is uh, a person shrouded in yellow and yellow is always seen as as a, a kind of a horrid 
color. And it seems to come out of this as well. Now, we already talked about the fact that the kind of, the room is really almost like a prison. There's even rings in the walls. And uh, the narrator kind of justifies that by, oh, maybe a place to, to hang toys or something. But it really does seem like a dungeon. It's it's really quite disturbing. And it's, it's an interesting uh, point that she is kind of placed in this room that used to be a nursery or that she thinks it used to be a nursery because that is consistent with how her husband treats her. Every single interaction with her, John treats her like a child. And she mentions many times that being treated that way, not being able to talk to her husband as an adult tires her out. She's just exhausted trying to make her opinion known, make her uh, wishes known. And so all she does is, all she can really do is just kind of lay there in bed. And then, of course, when John comes in and says, you're, you're just tired out, you need to lay in bed. It's kind of this vicious cycle. <laughs> and it all stems from how John is really treating her and talking to her, not as a person who he respects or uh, his wife or someone he loves, but rather a patient and, and a child patient at that. He doesn't even give her the respect that an adult deserves there. So obviously, uh, there are signs here where the narrator is suffering from postpartum depression. It's certainly uh, pretty obvious to anybody who's maybe gone through something like that or, or had somebody who has gone through something like that. But John says of her depression, well, if there's no reason for something, then it can't happen. There's no reason for you to be depressed. You're married to a physician, a well-respected physician. I'm really, what a prick, right? Uh, you, we, we have money. You have a beautiful, healthy baby. What do you have to be depressed about? So obviously you're not depressed. You're, you're, you're just, you're tired. So again, this more, uh, more and more invalidation of the narrator's feelings just puts her into this state where she can't take it. <laughs> it's really uh, 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 taxing physically and mentally and emotionally. And that's what kind of sets the, the, base for what happens to her throughout the story, stuck in this room, this awful yellow room uh, with nothing to do, nobody to talk to, nobody who respects her in even in the house. And that kind of sets the stage for what happens to her mentally throughout the story. Now, the narrator does tell John that she dislikes the wallpaper and that she would really rather it be gone because it bothers the living bejesus out of her. And we're going to get more into the specifics of the problems that she has with the wallpaper beyond just the the sickly color of it. And in telling John, we, we could we just take this down and maybe put something else up? John specifically says, well, that's adversary. That's something that you should deal with and work through on your own. So having this paper up that bothers you is actually good for you because you need to learn how to work with adversity and, and try to kind of assert your own your own feelings. So I'm going to leave the wallpaper up, which on the surface does, does not make a goddamn lick of sense. If, if his purpose is to get her better, maybe listen to her and, and do some of the things that she would want to have done so that she can feel better. Not, well, this bothers you? Good. We're going to keep it around uh, so that you can just overcome it on yourself and you'll be a stronger person. Again, very uh, speaking to her like she's a child, uh, not respecting her, not listening to her at all. It's, it's very, very frustrating to read. And of course, as all men do in, in these types of stories, cautions her again and again against 
imagining things. You have an overactive imagination, and in men, that's wonderful. That's that's creativity, and that's uh, you know uh, that's where we get all of our our uh, our good scientific discoveries and everything. Imagination in men is absolutely wonderful, but imagination in women make them sick. So don't imagine anything. <laughs> you know, stay in the here and now. Uh, don't let your mind run away with itself. Otherwise, you're just going to make yourself more ill. <laughs> so uh, we we've got some some really feminist themes going on here. So now let's talk uh, specifically about this wallpaper. Why doesn't the narrator like it beyond just the disgusting color of it? Well, she describes the wallpaper as having this design that is inconsistent. And that just puts an itch in her brain <laughs> as it would me, you know, think about uh, a nice, normal a consistent pattern, and then as you're following it along with your eyes, it changes, it shifts into a different pattern. It would be maddening. <laughs> it really is. And because of this kind of over-elaborate design that keeps shifting, the wallpaper kind of acts like clouds, suggesting shapes and even stories, you know, different ideas, different things that she can see in the wallpaper. And she thinks, she starts to believe that uh, there's two different designs. There's one on kind of the outside of the wallpaper. Uh, and then there's a design behind that, that she can't quite make out because it's called, it's all jumbled up and everything. But it seems to her that the design behind the outer design is a figure like trapped behind the, the outer design of the wallpaper, which in itself is very creepy. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who, as a kid, uh, saw things in the, in the subtle shadows of a dark room or, uh, you know, light being thrown up on the wall by a, by a passing car or, or the moon or whatever, uh, making some shapes that are kind of disturbing. This story really nails that. It's very, very good at suggesting that kind of creepy aspect of how light and shadow play on this maddeningly vague design in the wallpaper. And she says specifically that different kinds of light make different kinds of shapes uh, come out in the design of the wallpaper, specifically moonlight. Moonlight is the worst. It makes the worst shapes <laughs> kind of come out. So it's kind of the self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, John treats her like a child, puts her in a, a disused nursery. And what does she start doing? She starts to kind of exhibit these traits that maybe a child <laughs> might exhibit, you know, being scared by, by light thrown on a wall and everything. So it's, it's the situation that kind of keeps perpetuating itself. But certainly there's something going on with this wallpaper. And it's right about here where we start to get the idea of the possibility that something like this may have happened in this room before. You know, we, we do think about the fact that everything is bolted down to the floor. There are bars in the window. And this seemed like the natural place for John uh, to put his wife. And this is almost the room of a madwoman. <laughs> like if, if we had a kind of a Jane Eyre-esque situation where you were going to keep a woman uh, who has lost her mind locked up, this would probably be the room to do that in. And that will kind of inform some of the, some of the directions that the narrator's mind kind of goes on in the future throughout this story. Because to her, the figure behind the outer design of the wallpaper, she starts to believe that this figure is trapped 
in this wallpaper. That it used to be this figure that is uh, terrifying to her, something that is menacing, something that is lurking, some sort of threat to her. But that shifts throughout the story, and she starts to have more sympathy for this figure because it seems to be the figure, not only just a figure, but the figure of a woman trapped in the wallpaper. This is what gives the narrator the idea that maybe she is not the first person to have succumbed to this room. And, and certainly this is, uh, you know, at the beginning, it seems that uh, the narrator is the only one who seems to have any trouble with this room. This Nobody else seems to have a problem with it. But later on in the story, Jane, uh, John's, John's sister, and John himself uh, start to dislike the room itself. And the narrator even catches Jane looking at the wallpaper with this kind of disgust in her eyes. And it becomes clear that there's a smell, it, you know, at first it's just sight, <laughs> you know, the, the design is terrible. The, the color is awful, but the paper has a terrible smell to it. Uh, and also the feel, uh, Jane actually puts her fingers on the, the wallpaper and some of the yellow comes off on her fingers, which is really quite disturbing and disgusting. You know, it makes one think of like fungus and spores and, and rot and all of these kinds of things. It's, it's really, the wallpaper doesn't seem normal to any of them, but it's, it's the narrator who is locked up in here all the time, having to endure this wallpaper night after night after night where she sees this figure. And there's these really kind of disturbing images where uh, the narrator believes that the, the outer design almost starts to look, especially in Moonlight, of course, uh, like bars, and that the the figure behind them is actually shaking these bars, trying to get out. And it's really quite disturbing. It's really kind of creepy. Uh, you know, this this story exists with uh, with this feminist agenda, and that's perfectly fine. It's what it was written for, but it's it really uh, is a testament to how good Gilman's uh, skill is with storytelling, in that. It doesn't just do that. It doesn't just highlight uh, a problem between kind of male and, and female and, and this imbalance of power. It is also a terrifying story. It's very, very disturbing uh, what uh, the narrator sees and how this progression goes as she starts to really lose her mind here in this room. Because at one point, it seems that the figure sometimes gets out of the wallpaper because she sees the figure of a woman on her hands and knees creeping around the grounds outside the window. It's, it's over there in the shadows or it's, 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 she's slightly hidden by those bushes over there in the garden, but she sees the figure of this, of this woman behind the wallpaper has gotten out uh, and is now down in the, in the, on the grounds creeping around and around and around. It's just, it's, just deliciously disturbing. It's very, very creepy. And at a certain point, the narrator starts to become suspicious of John, that John is hiding something, that John is not telling her something, something that is very important for her to know and that he is keeping from her. There's this paranoia that starts to blossom up as the narrator starts to kind of lose it mentally. And it culminates with her 
tearing down the paper in the uh, in the room, just uh, just stripping it down uh, to its bare walls. And this obviously symbolizes kind of breaking free, kind of tearing free from these these imagined bars, but also letting this figure out from behind the wallpaper. But at the same time, that kind of is contradicted because she actually, like, literally locks herself in the room. She takes the key to the door and throws it out the window, and she's kind of locked herself into this bare cell so that she is free. She, she has become, uh, she has basically become the figure of the woman behind the wallpaper. So she is free, but she is also uh, trapped herself here inside the room. And at one point, she tries to uh, take the bed up. She she tries to lift the bed so that she can uh, she can move it and get it out of the room somehow. And she notices that there are bite marks. This is something that she noticed earlier on in the story that there are actually bite marks on the wood of of the of the bed posts. And she becomes so frustrated that she bites the wood to try to, you know, in anger. So there's this kind of circularity in the story. She is becoming the person who was trapped here originally. And it's, it's a very creepy kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of circularity to the story. And now of course she is the woman behind the wallpaper and she, she has kind of butted her shoulder up to this, this mark that goes all the way around the room, a certain level off the floor. And she's creeping around the room over and over and over. And her husband comes in and sees her doing this. And she says, I've gotten free in spite of you and Jane, and you can never put me back again. I'm, I'm free now and creeping around. And the last thing that uh, we hear in the story is that John has fainted and that she has to climb over him every single time she makes a revolution around the room. And that's where the, that's where the story ends. So it's a very creepy, very disturbing, very frustrating, very maddening story all at the same time. And it's just an absolute masterpiece of horror literature and also of feminist literature. It has a lot to say about relations between men and women and how women were viewed and treated at that time. Now, I'm going to make a couple of enemies here and say that one of the interpretations that I always found rather interesting about this and, and, and the story backs it up a tiny bit. You kind of have to squint your eyes and jump up and down a little bit to see it. Uh, it, it may not be there as well as I'd like it to be. But it always seemed to me that, uh, you know, why did John faint at the end? Uh, yeah, his wife has gone off the deep end. And yeah, it's his freaking fault. But it doesn't seem like that would cause him to, you know, literally faint. It always seemed to me that whoever was here previous, John may have been the person who uh, was quote unquote treating that woman as well. And maybe that woman went insane. Uh, maybe that woman died an unnatural death. It always seemed to me that John had some complicity in what happened before uh, he and his current wife showed up there. And it always seemed to me that when he sees his his wife crawling around the room and and his wife looks up at him having taken on the persona of this figure behind the wallpaper it always seemed to me that what would make a man faint in that situation would it be that my wife has gone insane or would it be that when my wife looked up at me with those eyes 
I recognized them. I always liked that interpretation that maybe he recognizes the person he has uh, driven insane or even killed the previous time. It's it's a stretch. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say that that is the one interpretation that everybody has to believe. It seems to work for me, but uh, if you don't buy it, that's fine. <laughs> there's there's more to the story that you can that you can enjoy. But I, you know, if you've read it before, and I hope that quite a few of you have, uh, maybe you've even read it in school. I encourage you to go read it again and see if you can find that in there. And you may not. I may be the only person on earth who believes this, but I like it. I like that interpretation. We talked about formalism. It's my damn story because it got published and I can read it and I can interpret it any way I want. So it's a wonderful story. It's it's a great story that has a lot to say about some very, very pertinent issues. Um, it's, it's absolutely a masterpiece and I encourage you to go read it for the first time if you haven't ever read it, but even if you have read it, please read it again. I was so overjoyed. I think the last time I had read it was, wow, over a decade ago. It had been a long time since I read it and rereading it for this podcast. It was such a delight. It's, it's just a wonderful short story. So go check it out again. Uh, the yellow wallpaper, it deserves the respect it has. It certainly does. All right. So next week we have yet another book that, uh, you cannot listen to the episode unless you've read the book. You really have to go read this book and you can go watch the movie, but you have to read the book first. The, bu the book is really, really good. That is Tim Crabbe's The Vanishing. Uh, it might not be an easy book to get your hands on, but uh, you have a week. Go, get, go find it. Go get it. Um, if you are going to watch the movie, if you're going to be that type of person, you're going to watch the movie instead of read the book. Fine. Be that way. But Damn it. Do not watch the American one. Watch the night. I think it's in the 1980s. Uh, the, the foreign language one criterion collection put out a wonderful version of it. Go watch the one that's in the foreign language. Do not watch the American one. The American one fucks up the ending. <laughs> I'm sorry. It just does go watch the original, but better yet, go read the book. This is an absolutely wonderful book, but it has this huge twist in it. And I don't want to ruin it for people. Uh, you've been warned. <laughs> We're going to talk about Tim Crabbe's The Vanishing next week. Thanks to Slaughterhouse for the use of his music. That is Slaughterhouse with a five instead of an S. You can find his work on Bandcamp. You can find out what I am currently reading on thestorygraph.com. Libris Leonis is my username, L-I-B-R-I-S underscore L-E-O-N-I-S. You can go to gildedinblood.com to check out previous episodes, to check out my fiction, and to check out some articles that I've written. Uh, over various different things, and there's certainly going to be more of them coming in the future. And until next time, stay safe and stay spooked. Spooked.